I don't think we're awake yet to what's going on across the country. I don't think there's widespread awareness of how precarious the situation is. And I think that it will take something dramatic, not just January 6th. I mean, that was, that was certainly dramatic, but something more dramatic. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Deirdre Schiefling, who I'm catching up with after talking to her a few years ago when she was at Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Deirdre is currently running Roadmap to American Democracy, a very ambitious effort to raise a billion dollars or more to support and protect democracy in the U.S. She previously did crucial work as campaign director for Democracy for All 2021 Action and leader of the Fight Back Table. Deirdre took her new role after serving as the director of advocacy at the White House, where she was liaison to progressive groups. Deirdre is once again at the center of the fight. You should know who she is and what she is up to. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Deirdre Schiefling at Roadmap to American Democracy. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Deirdre, you were on the show back in 2017 as my 61st episode, and I'm now over 800. This seemed high time to catch up with you. I noticed a few of the jobs that you've had in the interim, and they've all been right in the core of what I'm really interested in in terms of protecting democracy and working to help move the progressive agenda forward. And we're in such a time of trial in this country politically that I think we have an awful lot to talk about. When we spoke, you were at Planned Parenthood Action Fund, which has got to be super relevant right now, and I'm sure they miss you. But since that time, could you just catch me up on the series of things that you've been doing? Yeah, well, happy to. And thanks for having me on. It's great to catch up with you. I left Planned Parenthood in 2019. Uh, mid-2019, largely because of the need for democracy reform. So it had been becoming more and more clear to me over the last few years that I was um, running the electoral issue campaign and, and organizing work of Planned Parenthood that even though year after year after year we were growing, we had an, an exceptional and talented and huge staff we had incredibly devoted, committed volunteers, 12 million supporters, more money every year for our political work and our organizing work. So we were growing, growing, growing. Um, and yet we were not 
seeing that growth reflected in expansions and protections of women's access to reproductive health. So it was not actually accomplishing our goal in part because of the lack of democracy reform. So it became more clear to me that there was a ceiling to what we could do and how effective we could be without attacking the issue of structural democracy reform head on. And so that is what I started working on at Planned Parenthood the last year or two I was there. So probably soon after our last conversation, I started to really build coalitions around that work and really move the organization to be more involved in democracy reform work. And then left sort of mid-2019 to run a campaign full-time to try to win legislation that would help with democracy reform. So when you say structural democracy reform, I'm pretty sure I know what you mean, but could you clarify what, what your goals were? Yeah, twofold. Structural democracy reform to me means both the rules that we are hopefully all playing by, or some of us are playing by, we're supposed to be playing by, um, as well as the underlying way that we organize our democracy. So both need to be strengthened and reformed. The rules being things like rules around voting, who can vote, where can they vote, how can they vote. Um, You know, a simple guide being every eligible voter should be able to vote and have their vote be counted. And those are things that rules should make possible, guide, you know, protections. That is not the case in this country right now by a long shot. And it's a huge problem for our democracy. The second piece in terms of like the underlying structure to me means the structure of the Senate, for example, the fact that we have a system of government which greatly preferences white people, older people, more rural areas of the country. They have so much more power, outsized amounts of power because of the way that the Senate is structured. Because small states are overrepresented. Way overrepresented. You know, rebalancing representation in our country to be more reflective of who lives here and what their priorities and values and goals are is really important. I think the other piece is court reform. We now have a Supreme Court that has gone off the rails um, and is ignoring precedent, is ignoring rules, I think is a reflection of the lack of accountability of the Supreme Court and of and the structures by which we appoint and confirm those judges. I assume the things like the Electoral College and redistricting part of that or, or not so much? Yeah, I think, yes, I think we should have a popular vote that r- results in the winner of presidential elections, um, full stop. And yes, I mean, we need to have fair districts and end to gerrymandering. I agree with that. I think that we have now gotten to the point where because we have one party that um, has decided that rules and laws are for suckers and that, you know, just let's just get power by any means and hold power by any means. We have to really rethink how we protect and rebuild our democracy in the face of that. The Electoral Count Act, I'm actually not clear on whether they've come to a compromise to fix that. But that's another piece of this structural problem that Trump was taking advantage of in the run-up to January 6th, right? Yeah. And I think, I think efforts like the Electoral Count Act 
efforts like the freedom to vote legislation that unfortunately did not pass but came close are really important and they need to be coupled with a mass movement for democracy because in the face of a pretty lawless faction, MAGA faction, which is ascendant and is controlling a significant amount of resources and voters, uh, it's not enough to pass rules and you know, it's not enough to pass laws. The legal system is not going to protect us. I had a conversation the other day with uh, E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport. They have this 100% democracy thing. And even though that is yet to become sort of popular, it struck me as maybe a way to cut through some of the, the minutiae of fighting against voter suppression and things like that. You're aware of that? What What are your thoughts? I'm about aware it? of that. I mean, my understanding is it's a voting initiative to make sure that everybody votes. Yeah, it's it's basically mandatory voting like in Australia or mandatory participation. You could vote none of the above or whatever, but you have to go and, and be part of the democracy. Yeah. And I think that is a really interesting idea. Both of them are incredibly smart and thoughtful leaders in the space. So I think it's an interesting initiative. I do think that it needs to be coupled with a mass movement for democracy reform, because again, it's another rule and law. And I think we have to really grapple with what does it mean to live in a country where rules and laws don't matter? It's interesting to me that you, that you got going on this before January 6th. Clearly, we've been building up to just a stark problem that was a big problem in 2016 and beyond. But now the move by Trump to sort of deny the election results and to even gin up a violent crowd to go after Congress, that is so beyond the pale of what we, at least I could conceive in 2019. It must just have really charged your efforts in this regard, right? Yes. During that last election cycle, in addition to running the democracy reform campaign, I was also the director of the Fightback Table, which was basically the place that grassroots organizations across the progressive movement were coordinating how to fight back against these attacks. It takes a minute for the sort of cognitive dissonance of how outside our norm this moment is to kind of catch up with folks and for it to result in a different way of acting and a different way of understanding reality. And so I don't think we're 100% there yet, but the Fightback Table and all of the organizations that were part of the, the kind of revote effort and the effort to really push back against Trump's overt attempt to subvert the election results and steal the elections was incredibly inspiring and incredibly effective. So I have hope that from that experience, we have a little bit of muscle memory about how to do this, what to do, how to do it, which we'll need in the coming in the coming months for sure. So I'm, I'm very curious about how something like Fight Back Table comes together. What was your role in, in making that happen? And can you just sort of recount it for people who aren't part of that or not aware that, that this key effort was going on, which is most people, I think, protecting them, right? Tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So I did not start the Fightback Table. The Fightback Table was started by a group of movement leaders, largely leaders of color, who 
came together and decided that they wanted to have some space for longer term thinking, you know, strategizing, planning so that they could be more effective in their roles. They're all people who run organizations and they wanted to do more together. So move on, uh, the Domestic Workers Alliance, Color of Change, those are some of the groups that um, initially started the Fightback Table. And the Fightback Table grew to have, I think probably now it has about 100 organizations that are part of it, that are grassroots organizations, both nationally and some at the state level. And it still exists. And and how did they pull you in or, and what did you do there? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Um, they recruited me <laughs> um, because I knew some of the leadership pretty well. And they recruited me to come and be the Five Back Table's first director, which was a part-time role because I was also running this democracy reform effort at the same time. And the goal of it was really to create space for longer-term strategic conversations. So like help both bring these leaders who are running a thousand miles an hour every day, the kinds of information and perspective that they're not going to get in their day-to-day busyness for understanding the environment that we're in and where we're probably going. And that doesn't mean I know all of that. That means like bringing in the people on the outside who are going to help inform their perspective and then standing up campaigns that they can do together. And so the biggest one that I was part of organizing along with others, Angela Peoples, Alethea Henry, there were a number of people involved, was this Count Every Vote Democracy Defense Coalition effort. And the Democracy Defense Coalition was a grassroots campaign. It involved basically every major national progressive group and many at the key state level. So much of labor Planned Parenthood and lots of community organizations, racial justice organizations, and groups on the ground in the key states that we knew were going to be the site of a lot of this fight over the election results. So Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, et cetera. What we did was we built coalitions in each state with existing leaders, so identified who the right leaders were that already exist worked with them to pull together coalitions that were Democracy Defense Coalition in Michigan or Arizona or whatever, and help them make a plan for their state and then resource it. So that's kind of what it was. Yeah. So what did they, what do you think was done differently because of that coalition than would have been done anyway? I mean, I think all of it, the work that this coalition did had not ever existed before. I mean, we had never been in a situation in in my time in this work where we have a sitting president basically refusing to accept election results unless he's the winner and saying that very overtly. So the idea that we were going to be facing election subversion was clear and getting ready to push back on the grassroots level, getting ready by doing a series of um, editorial board meetings and helping newspapers and other media outlets understand what was happening, all the groundwork in coordination with our legal allies to really, you know, be ready for that moment when that happens. None of that work has happened in past cycles because we haven't needed to do it. So yeah, I think it was incredibly effective. It resulted in both not having mobilizations when we didn't want to have them, 
when it wasn't strategic and having mobilizations when we did want to have them. It resulted in pressure on the right election officials who were being tempted by Trump to do the wrong thing. So like shining a spotlight on them, raising it up, making sure that the public knew what was happening and doing that all in a very coordinated way. So what's an example of when this coalition restrained communication and what's an example of when you organized communication? Yeah. I mean, I think there was there was a lot of internal debate and discussion around whether or not people should go out in the street right after election day or on election night and be in a sort of protest stance. And the leaders of the Fight Back Table and others um, really decided that actually, no, that was giving too much credence to these wild ideas that President Trump and his followers had, and that the better thing to do would be just to scoff at it and to uh, be out celebrating that, you know, Biden won, obviously, and we're going to celebrate that. We're not even going to respond and give it airtime and oxygen and credence, the idea that somehow um, these election deniers should be taken seriously. So that was like a, a big strategic pivot. The Working Families Party, who was also a, a big part of the Fight Back Table, initiated a joy to the polls effort, which was uh, brilliant and which we helped like amplify and copy all around. So like instead of being out there in a militant way with, you know, confronting election deniers, we were out there in a joyful, you know, let's have a street party, let's celebrate way. And I think that made a huge difference in terms of not escalating tensions and also retaining the high ground. Biden won by like something like 7 million votes, but he won by very few votes over the five close states, right? And could have lost in the Electoral College because of the way it tilts if things had just gone a little bit worse. What would you have done if he had lost in the Electoral College, even while carrying the popular vote by a huge amount? Yeah, I mean, I think that would have been a real inflection point and a real uh, moment of calling the question on the legitimacy of this kind of system of of electing presidents. If four years ago or 2000 weren't enough. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's an illegitimate way to elect people and it's it's not reflective. It's not democratic. That's my personal opinion. It's an old compromise. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bad compromise. I think that people know that and they feel it. I don't know what would have happened, honestly. I think that it would have been a moment to really call the question. You were simultaneously running your other effort. Tell yeah. me about that one. That was a coalition of labor, racial justice groups, movement groups um, who were committed to trying to advance some kind of democracy reform legislation. And, and, and it was oriented towards both convincing the large, powerful institutions that were part of the campaign that this is a top priority. Like sort of my experience at Planned Parenthood, I was there for almost 10 years. Like there is a limit to what progress we can make on this one issue of access to reproductive health care without really grappling with democracy reform and the, the need for that because it's disempowering. That's also true for every other issue, climate and labor. So part of the campaign was really organizing 
those powerful institutions to prioritize democracy reform, not as the third or fourth thing on the list, but closer to the first. And then the second piece was really about working with and also pushing Democrats to use this one opportunity that they were going to have for democracy reform to do the reforms that really matter. So like, don't tinker around the edges, really go for it. And as part of that filibuster reform, you know, which is so obvious as an unnecessary ingredient of being able to pass important legislation that, you know, isn't subject to reconciliation rules, filibuster reform was a a big piece of that. And so I think we saw what happened. We didn't get filibuster reform and the legislation failed, unfortunately. When I've talked to local leaders that are working kind of in the trenches in areas that are not well-educated, that are dealing with poverty and discrimination and things like that, they often talk to me about this gulf between large intellectual questions like democracy reform and the day-to-day lives of people and the difficulty in making this real to people who are trying to put food on the table and for whom maybe both Democrats and Republicans have seemed to not fix their issues and who are discouraged by politics and or disengaged from politics completely and are vulnerable to, I don't know, authoritarian calls to like, I can fix everything for you. How do you think about the politics of democracy reform when it's really something that's probably only understood by some proportion of the electorate and and far from all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a great question. And I have a lot of thoughts about how to do a better job on our side of connecting democracy reform. Who knows what that means, right? That's sort of a meaningless term, but it's really elected officials who are accountable to you and elected officials who are acting in your interests. And I think uh, Democrats being much stronger and more full-throated um, in and more effective, although I think President Biden has been incredibly effective, although doesn't get the credit that he deserves for it. But I think Democrats in general have not been very effective in showing working people what they're doing to concretely make their lives better and in being on their side in a way that is visceral. So it's not just like listing out policy positions. It's somebody who you feel like is with you. I mean, I think Fetterman is doing a really good job of embodying that, probably because he just is that person. But like Democrats in general uh, don't and need to. So I think that's part of it. The ability to talk to people about what they care about in a way that is resonant and connect it to having elected officials who are accountable in a system that's accountable, that's democracy reform. There's something about what Trump has done to communicate and what DeSantis is doing to communicate where they stake out such a clear, dramatic, kind of over-the-top position, like this election police thing that arrested 20 people in Florida. It's so appalling and garbage, but like it's sort of in some way hard to argue that like we're for people voting against the rules. And so he gets to score a lot of right wing points 
out of that DeSantis does. It feels like very few of the Democrats have that knack. I mean, you're in the middle of that. Is it a scruple against, you know, like being over the top? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Or, or, I mean, I I don't want to do it by lying and nonsense and, and posturing, but it is kind of fun to watch Fetterman, you know, twisting his opponent around uh, kind of populist ideas. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure what the answer to your question is really. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. You know, Trump, DeSantis, these people are entertaining and they're easy to understand in part because most of what they say is nonsense. And, you know, reality is harder to understand. It's not so um, soundbiteable. I do think that we need to do a better job of communicating our message. Yeah. Your democracy reform campaign, how did it go? Well, the legislation did not pass. So in that sense, it was not successful. But in terms of elevating and building support for some of the core components, I think it went very well. It was not the only effort out there in the world. There were other efforts, so I don't want to overclaim. But it was probably the only effort that was seriously engaging filibuster reform. And we went from a place where filibuster reform was like the third rail. You could never say it. If you say it, like everybody gets upset, everybody gets mad at you, like it's so scary, to a place where every Democratic senator, except for two, are on the record in support of it, as is the president. You know, I think it really moved the needle, um, helped move the needle on that. I think it also was a little ahead of its time. Like the, the issues that we were raising in that campaign were big and bold and aggressive. And it was like two years early in terms of the political community in DC, like fully coming on board with that. It's like they needed to have the experience of the 2020 elections to then realize, oh yeah, I see. Like, this is why we need this kind of deep reform. It's not enough to just do some like voting laws, even though that's also very important. It's insufficient. I mean, it does seem like any any major thing that happens has to have the groundwork laid for it in history, you know, like you don't get the Civil Rights Act of 64 without the Civil Rights Act of 57, which is very modest or something like that. Right. And then you need for the political opportunity structure to be ready to move through it and to have things already written and tried. Maybe we'll get them down the road. There are critics of the the attention and the effort to push democracy reform through the Congress. I, you, you know, Dimitri Melhorn, for example, who works for Reed Hoffman, um, who he was on my show recently saying, basically, that was the wrong thing to do. We should have gotten more bipartisan stuff through. We should have had good news for Biden for a long time. Instead, he wasted all this time and and the progressive movement wasted on all this time on something that was never going to pass, that was signaled very clearly by the two senators, the villains in this piece among the Democratic Party. How do you respond to that? Do you think he has something uh, somewhat right? Or do you think uh, we should have gone harder at it? What are your thoughts? I mean, all due respect to Dimitri. Uh, I really disagree. I think that We did do a lot of things. I mean, I was in the Biden administration. We did a lot of super positive, the American Rescue Plan. We got the infrastructure bill passed bipartisan. We just 
finally, finally, finally got what has now been renamed as the Inflation Reduction Act, <laughs> the, you know, formerly known as like part of Build Back Better. It wasn't all of Build Back Better. President Biden and the Biden administration has an excellent track record of getting big, substantive things done for the American people. But public opinion might have congealed to some degree around the notion that that he wasn't getting stuff through, right? Or that like the big ambitious stuff was foundering, right? Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think unfortunately it took months and months of this process to play out um, in Congress that we lost some momentum there for sure. The media, I don't, I don't pretend to understand why the media covers things the way they do. I really don't. It's fascinating to be on, uh, on the inside and reading about what you're doing on the outside. They almost always get it wrong. Yeah, it's very wrong. I agree. It just drives me up a tree, honestly. Yeah. So I don't, I don't pretend to understand that. But I do think that our side does not have a clear and accurate power analysis. And when we have power, when we are controlling, you know, sort of, not exactly, but we have majorities in the House, the Senate, and we have the presidency, it is our job to pass things that will make it more possible for us to pass additional things to help the American people. And if we do not fix the underlying issues with the system that are making it impossible for us to get progress, filibuster reform, gerrymandering, voter suppression, the structure of the Senate, then we are squandering an opportunity to make much, much more progress down the road. I just fundamentally disagree with that worldview. I think we can walk and chew gum, first of all. And second of all, um, if we don't seize that moment to try to right the ship and rebalance, we're wasting an opportunity. And we have wasted it in the past. I mean, the, the fact that we don't have better labor laws, that was an Obama era miss. Um, the fact that we haven't taken care of a lot of these democracy problems, you know, decades ago, it's a huge miss and we're suffering for it. We're the most, one of the most unequal countries in the world. We have an incredibly high child poverty rate. We have an incredibly, you know, just like every measure of like, is society good for people, for children? We're missing the mark and we're doing that because of lack of democracy. And we're doing it because of vigorous, well-funded conservative opposition over decades. I mean, yeah, just undermine democracy. Yeah. Yes. What was next for you after those two? Then I went into the Biden administration and I was the advocacy director in the political outreach department. What does that mean? Basically, it means that I my role was to hold the relationships with the progressive movement on the outside, with foundations and funders, with all kinds of different allies to help move the Biden administration's agenda, um, whatever it, what, whatever the large priority was at the time. So whether that was the American Rescue Plan, I spent a lot of time on implementing the child tax credit and helping to make sure that we were reaching every last person who was eligible for the child tax credit. And that required a tremendous amount of work with external partners. And I think sort of being that bridge between outside organizations and the White House. That sounds like a incredibly fascinating place to be. What's the biggest challenge to that? One really big challenge was just how hard it is to move legislation. So it has been like an incredibly eye-opening and, and humbling experience to 
work for the most powerful office in the world, the White House, and still go through months and months and months um, of grueling work to try to pass uh, legislation that's broadly supported by the American people, passionately supported by the American people, and just how hard it is to do that. So I think that was probably the hardest part, just actually trying to make progress, deliver for the American people, do what we were there to do. Um, Of course, the democracy bill was heartbreaking and very disappointing. The system is designed to slow legislation down. That's why there's two chambers. That's why, you know, a lot of these rules to make sure that we don't go fast. In fact, we like that when the other side is in power, but it's awfully frustrating when we Especially in a a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, period of economic struggle, like, yeah, it's good to, it's good to, well, I mean, like people like FDR or Lyndon Johnson had huge majorities so that they could roll things. Um, it, it seems like a pivotal moment in that was the drama around the decoupling of build back better and the infrastructure bill came apart sort of, and one got passed and the progressives in the house were, trying to keep them together. And there was a lot of brinkmanship around that. What, what was your perspective on that moment? My perspective is basically, it's hard to see beyond the piece of the elephant that you're currently touching. And it's very hard to understand all the different dynamics that are going on that lead to different decisions being made. And so I think at the time, the people who were running the legislative work, which is not me, I was not in the legislative department, felt like that was the right call. And that was the way to make progress, get some momentum, move things forward. I see the piece of the elephant that I'm, I'm touching. So I have no reason to think that that was the wrong decision. Just kind of broadly, when you think about the Biden administration during the time you were there, my own view is very positive. Honestly, I I feel like The president has appointed very good people across a gigantic government. He's moving things in the right direction. He's making a lot of good decisions. In fact, the support for him in the country among leaders has been much more pragmatic than you might like initially guess it would be after all the pent up demand. But what's what's your view about, I mean, you're in and then you're out over there. What's your view about like that operation legislatively, politically. I think you're right. I think, you know, it's honestly astonishing to me that the president and the team around the president doesn't get more credit because they are incredibly effective. He is incredibly effective and values driven. And the team around him are a bunch of pros. Um, And so I, yeah, I think he's delivered on many, many, many things. And also, even if he hasn't delivered, he's trying to get the right thing. He's trying to get there. Yes, he's trying to get there. Um, You know, I think uh, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't, I don't, you know, and on purpose, I just, I feel like it's a way to sort of get into um, an eco chamber that is really, really not reflective of the majority of people in this country. And I think um, from the perspective of the majority of people in this country, um, if they knew what he'd been doing, they would approve. I don't think they know. I bet. But- and what drives me up a tree, another time I'm saying the same thing, is the contrast with his predecessor who knows nothing or and whose reflexes are all wrong and who's so dishonest 
but he's entertaining. Biden has not been forceful in his communication generally, or it's not coming through. It's not bombastic. It's no. I mean, there's a way to see that as dignified and correct. And there's a way to worry about its political force, I think. Yeah. 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 But, you know, in general, incredible learning experience for me. It's got to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's a bunch of pros. You had worked in the interest group world and in these campaigns. How different was it for you to be in the administration? And what is the contrast just as as jobs go? Yeah, I mean, very, very different. Um, I think within the administration, although it does kind of feel like a campaign environment. So that that part is similar, like people are working long hours. There's a lot of uh, emergencies and crises, a lot of urgency. So like that part is was similar. But I think the idea that what you're doing is so impactful, like what you're doing is the final decision. So like you are the person being lobbied by all the outside interest groups. So that was a very strange turnabout. My other reflection is like, there's just a tremendous amount that goes into every decision. And it's hard to see it on the outside, like the number of stakeholders, the level of oversight, all of the different components that make up one single decision is intense. And it's it's not always clear. Yeah. But also very in contrast to the Trump presidency, where the dis- decision making is using the people, as I understand it, using the people who have the expertise, who are in the right positions to like make sure it's done right, as opposed to one guy coming out and saying some shit. Right. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. What were the circumstances of leaving? Oh, um, well, I have three kids um, and I love them and I want to see them. (laughs) Um, And so my agreement with my husband was when I got this job offer was that I would do it for a year and I did it for about 14 months. That was sort of our, that was our agreement. So I was uh, both relieved to, to exit because I was ready to go back and be part of my family uh, in a functional way, but also sad to, you know, sad to leave the incredible team that I had the privilege of working with and all, all the colleagues I was learning from all the time. So it was definitely like a work-life balance consideration. What what did you do after returning to the family and leaving? Yeah. Right <laughs> I just took six weeks off and we had like just family time. So that was amazing. That just happened over the summer when the kids are out of school. And I, I took a role um, running the Roadmap for American Democracy, which is an effort started by a number of large foundations to really help support and scale up the work happening in the democracy field. So I've done that for the last few months. I mean, it's, you know, I, I left relatively recently, so it's, it's, it's only been a few months, but it's given me a real bird's eye view on all the work happening across the ecosystem to help support and protect democracy and also where the needs are um, in terms of the, the work that we should be scaling up, like around political violence and, you know, really around preparing for election subversion in a much, much more robust way than we've had to do in the past. I'm glad to be in this seat at the moment. I want to know the, what the bird's eye view is. Who's involved in that and what are you, what are you doing through that? Well, the goal of it is to really um, recruit new donors 
into the ecosystem so that we can scale up the work that's needed to be commensurate with the crisis that we're facing. It's really a a building, scaling, raising job. What donors are already involved in and how's it going in finding others? I don't think it's a public list, so I won't say it on this show, but a number of large, well-known foundations are anchoring it. And I think it's going well. I mean, part of the role of the roadmap was to, and this, uh, this was initiated from the existing donors, was to really map out and make sense of the ecosystem because it is very complex. It has grown tremendously. It has changed. To be able to really lay out Here's all the work happening across these different pillars of democracy work. Here are where we think the work really needs to get scaled and deepened in preparation for next cycle. Um, So yeah, that's, that's, but I'm at the beginning, you know, I'm at the beginning of it. I'm sure I'll have more reflections to share. Well, Well, give me an example of a pillar and what you think is going on and what gaps there are. Yeah. So One pillar is mis- and disinformation and media ecosystem. And so like the tremendous proliferation of mis- and disinformation over the last several years, we have not figured out how to effectively handle it. And it's corroding our democracy all over the place. In addition to uh, really a a lack of sufficient media ecosystem to be able to communicate with large swaths of the electorate who are only hearing from Fox News or Sinclair Radio or whatever. And so really um, understanding how to build out um, media ownership and use it well to convey the truth and convey facts um, to people that we aren't used to talking to is is one of the challenges of that pillar. You know, when I talk to people and ask them the question about gaps, that is often the thing that they most point to. It's just that imbalance. What's another pillar? I mean, another pillar is protecting the right to vote. So basically all the work around making sure that anybody who is eligible to vote can vote and have their vote be counted. That's like easy to say, incredibly hard to do. It's a tremendous amount of work. Another pillar is around preparing for election sabotage. So that includes like both organizations who are preparing mass mobilization Those are legal strategies. That's preparing for political violence, de-escalation, accountability efforts, the aftermath of situations like January 6th, um, making sure there's accountability. So all that whole host of work. How do you locate all of all of the key players in that space? I've been sort of doing that in my little podcast for for five plus years and talking to a lot of those people, but I keep finding, you know, whole groups I didn't know about, uh, whole areas. What's the process for surveying and bringing together that wide ecosystem? Yeah, we have very talented consulting teams that are doing that, and they've done exactly that. So both hiring people who already know the field and are known in the field, because this is so highly relational, as is everything always, to get that information, map it, quantify it, understand what people's programs are, their budgets, their gaps. One thing I'm very excited about, which I think is kind of newly on the horizon, are ballot initiatives in states where we are very far away from being able to pass anything legislatively. 
um, to really protect democracy, protect voting access. So like Arizona, Michigan, those ballot initiatives, I think, are exactly the kind of thing that we should be doing. They're forward looking. They're going to give us a better terrain for 2024, some protection, and they're, they're the only way to get it done. So I think, you know, identifying work, more work like that is what's needed in the space. I'm glad that's going on. I'm uh, pretty uh, excited to know that. What, what, in terms of building an organization, um, what is the goal? Like, how many people do you want working for you? How much money do you want passing through? What's the scale here? Yeah. So um, this is not an organization. This is like a project. And the goal of it is to uh, have the investment in democracy be commensurate with the threat. So while we don't have an exact numeric goal, the the goal that we've sort of used as a ballpark is $1 billion for next cycle. For the presidential. Yeah. If we can raise a billion dollars to protect and defend democracy next cycle, that will have will have successfully accomplished our goal. I'm happy to hear a large number. The threat seems, you know, in the in the gigantic order. I mean, the, the dismantling of the system. I'm not saying a billion is is sufficient, but it's it's probably what we, you know, it's probably the outside of what we can do. I mean, that's what the Asian American Foundation raised for anti-Asian violence, right? A uh, billion dollars. Yes. Um, so if they can do that for that. We should be able to do this for democracy. Yeah. Well, maybe we should raise our goal. I did not realize that. Thanks for provoking me in that way. Talk to Sonal Shah maybe about it. Yeah. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I failed to? I don't think so. I'm sort of out of practice of doing this, to be honest. So I feel like my answers are probably not as succinct as they could be. Um, I'm not aiming for succinctness, so I think not as clear, not as clear as they could be, um, because I'm a little out of practice. What's your level of optimism versus pessimism as you look forward in the next two elections? We are potentially at a giant inflection point that could turn very, very bad or could break in our favor. And it's hard to tell. I mean, I'm super worried, but where are you? Yeah. I mean, I think that we have not hit bottom yet. And I think we're going to have to hit bottom to have sufficient momentum. I don't want to hit bottom. <laughs> I think we're going I think we're going there. With a you mean with like a the mega people are going to get in control of everything. Um no, not necessarily. I I I don't think bottom has to look like that. That could be what bottom looks like, but it could also be a total refusal to accept the legitimacy of election results that they don't like on the Republican side. I could see us going in that direction. All kinds of elections at uh, lots of different levels. Yeah. And And, yeah. Yeah. Lots of things go through your head when countries are disintegrating, they have political assassinations, all kinds of horrible things. hopefully, Hopefully none of that happens, but I don't think we're awake yet. To what's going on across the country. I don't think there's widespread awareness of how precarious the situation is. And I think that it will take something dramatic, not just January 6th. I mean, that was that was certainly dramatic, but something more. If if that had resulted in the in Pence dying or Pelosi dying or something like that, maybe it would have woken us up, but I don't know. Deirdre, it's an honor to talk to you. I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. Is there anything else you want to say? No. Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking to you again. 
That was Deirdre Schiefling. Deirdre is at Roadmap to American Democracy. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.